The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Genesis 1, 1 through 5, and 1 verse 26 through 2 verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you do have a Bible, go ahead and get to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to be hanging out. We're going to be there in a while. And when I say a while, I mean a while. It's going to take us a little bit. Uh, i got to set up the series and the sermon and all that fun stuff. Uh, Real quick, we are two weeks out from Easter, if you can believe it or not. And you're like... Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, It's April, which is wild, 2022, in the year of our Lord. Um, But we got these invite cards that uh, we made for you guys. Stephen Simmons did an awesome job on the design. They are just little business-sized invite cards for you to take. They're on the table in the back in stacks of three. So if you're like, I got three, take three. If you're like, I got six people I'm going to invite, that's okay. You can take two stacks. That's that's for you. Uh, But if you're going to take them, give them away. Uh, There's little invite cards that have the details about Easter Sunday in particular. That's coming up in two weeks. You can find out information online. We really would encourage you, grab these, invite a coworker, a family, a friend, a neighbor. We're going to worship Jesus, celebrate the gospel together, and then we're going to head outside. We have food trucks for the adults. We have Easter egg hunts for the kids, all that fun stuff. Uh, I read a study from last year, this week, that 82% of people who don't follow Jesus say they would attend a worship gathering if they were invited by a friend. And so I'm inviting you to take that risk, to say, okay, eight out of my 10 friends might at least say they're going to come, and then half of those might actually come. Uh, And so I'd invite you to pick those up, invite somebody. Genesis chapter 1, just a fair warning, I'm going to say it once. We're going to go long today, and we're going to be kind of at 30,000 feet for about 40 minutes, and then I'm going to land the plane hardcore, okay? So if your friend invited you, don't worry, you'll get to dinner eventually. we got to do what we got to do. Let me pray. Genesis chapter 1. I'm very excited for what we have uh, tonight, what the Lord has for us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that every single 
word in it is from you. And so that means it's true. That means it's trustworthy. It means it's good and it's helpful for life and for godliness and for flourishing with you. John, so I pray as we consider the beginning of all things, as we consider Genesis 1, as we consider the creation narrative, as we think about the story of you, God, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts, that as we just sang, are in fact open to you and to your spirit and to your presence, to your conviction, to your encouragement. Lord, have your way with us, whatever that means, whatever you need to do. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, In 1950, author C.S. Lewis, who is now world-renowned, released the first book, not chronologically, but just in terms of release, in his kind of epic saga, The Chronicles of Narnia. And this first book was called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I know that many of us have read the book or seen the movies, but just as a way of recap, it's the story of this sibling group of four siblings who during World War II are kind of flee inner city London, go out to the countryside. And while they're there in this home, they discovered through the back of a big giant wardrobe, this secret world called Narnia. When they arrive in Narnia, there's still a lot of questions that they have for the people they encounter or the animals or the creatures they encounter. And if you zoom out, what's fascinating about the plot of that first book is that so much of it is them just trying to figure out what's going on. So much of the first book is them asking, why are we here? How are we here? Why is it snowing? Why is it always snowing? Who's good? Who's evil? Who's fighting? What side should we be on? And a lot of the conflict of that first book is that Edmund thinks the queen is right and wants to fight with her, and the rest of the siblings think that Aslan is the one true king and want to fight with him. In this whole first book, you're just watching them go back and forth, back and forth. What is up? What is down? Where are we? And how did we get here? And what's the story? I think that's a fascinating picture of what it means to be human. So much of being human is trying to figure out, where am I? And how did I get here? And how did we get here? And what's the story? And what's going on? And what's up? And what's down? And what's right? right, And what's wrong? Because the world didn't begin to exist when you were born. The world didn't finally come into existence on October 24th, 1991, the day that I entered into the world. I am not the pinnacle of the creation moment, and neither are you. So we enter into an already happening story, a story with a beginning, a story with a past, a story with characters and conflict and ups and downs and right and wrong. And so, so much of our existence as humans is just asking the same questions as the kids in Arnia. And here are the questions that we ask, why am I here? Like, what's the purpose? What's the goal? What's the aim? What's broken? What's broken with me? What's broken with the world around me? How do we fix it? Like, how do we take what's broken and make it right? And where is it all headed? Where are we going? What's, what's the future? These are the questions of the human experience. What we're looking for, whether we would use this phrasing or not, is a meta narrative a larger story by which to place the smaller stories of our lives, something to make sense of the world, something to make sense of our lives and our purpose, something to make sense of evil and joy. And whatever meta-narrative you decide, whether cognitively or functionally, in your lived reality day to day, is going to affect how you 
live. Because here's the reality. Everyone lives out of the story they believe. Everyone lives out of the story they believe. If the queen is right, we fight for the queen. But if Aslan is king, we fight for Aslan. However you would answer those four questions, why am I here, what's broken, how do we make it right, where is it all headed, will determine the direction and the destination and the outcome of your life. Now here's the reality. There's no shortage of meta-narrative options offered to us in the world today. We could spend an entire sermon, maybe even an entire series, breaking down different options you have of stories to put your story in. But I would argue that the largest meta-narrative that we face as modern 21st century Americans is that of what is called Western secular liberalism. All right, so if you're not familiar with that term, let me kind of break it down for you. So Western, which is coming out of kind of Western democracy and kind of these ideas of individual rights of the human. Secular, a world devoid of God devoid of anything supernatural or spiritual, and liberalism, not like the political left liberal, but human freedom, the flourishing of the authentic individual. Western secular liberalism. And this is the the meta-narrative calling for your attention all over the place. It's basically, if you start to look for it, the default operating system of every single person around you, and chances are maybe you as well. This is how it answers those questions. So it would say, okay, why are we here? Well, our origin is that of random chance or a result of rapid expansion from a single point of nearly infinite energy. So we don't really know. It's a lot of mystery, but now we're here. The universe has chosen to give us life. And so our responsibility and our purpose is to live as true and authentically as possible to our truest self while not trying to harm others in the process. Well, what's wrong? What's the problems? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with the world? Well, the problem is limits. The problem is authority. The problem is anyone or anything that would get in the way of me being my most true and authentic self, whether that be the government, my family system, friends, workplace, whatever that may be. Well, then if that's the problem, how do we make it right? Well, we throw off all limit and restraint. Right? We just get rid of all the people that would put limits around us. We cut off the relationship. We become our own boss. We move to the other city. We follow our hearts. We learn to live by the words of my daughter's favorite Scandinavian scholar. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Cut off all limits. Cut off all restraint. Well, where's it all headed? Towards this future version of utopia where we're fully and freely ourselves in limitless love and perfection. If I could quote the philosopher Charles Taylor, if you're like, what's going on with society? You need to read Charles Taylor. This is how he sums it up. He says, this is the understanding of life in our kind of Western secular liberalism moment. This is the understanding of life that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. In other words, the goal of the human today is to be happy, and the way to be happy is to live out your most authentic self. And anything that would get in the way of that, anything that would come up against that is not just wrong, but evil and wicked. And this is Rampant. It is on offer everywhere in our society, including the church. There's a Christianized version of this as well. What one study from last year said that 40% of American evangelicals actually ascribe to in their daily life. It's what Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith called moralistic therapeutic deism. 
The primary goal in life is just like that of the Western secular liberal. It's still your happiness. It's still your authenticity. It's still whatever's going to bring you joy. God is just kind of this distant, floating source of power that's supposed to help you figure out how to live your authentic truth, how to live your authentic joy. He exists, but sort of as like this faraway genie that's there to help you be your best you. Yet for all of its promise of utopia and freedom and joy and life, we have more than enough evidence to know that this meta-narrative simply doesn't work. More than enough statistics. Pick your poison, right? Depression is through the roof. Loneliness rates are ridiculously skyrocketing. Burnout from hustle culture. Addiction across the board is at an all-time high in our society. Prescription medication, specifically for anxiety and help with sleeping, are through the roof. It's just not delivering on what it offers. It's not giving us what it says it can give us. And maybe you even feel that on a deeply personal level. Maybe you feel that for yourself. Maybe you've bought into, no, I'm trying to go after what's going to bring me the most joy, and it just doesn't seem to work. And so it begs the larger question, is there a better story? Is there a better narrative by which to put our smaller stories? And as followers of Jesus, we would say yes. Yes, there is. Not just a better story, but the true story. The story we believe is the story of God. Story of God. That's the true and better story on offer to us to make sense of our lives. And so what we're talking about over the next three weeks, three Sundays and Good Friday, is this story of God. The the big story, answering all of these questions from the scriptures. Why are we here? What's wrong? How do we fix it? And where is it all headed? And so tonight I want to start with Act 1. Act 1, it's called Creation. The Kingdom of God Begins. We're going to start in the very first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to work through a lot of it, so I'd encourage you, if you need a Bible, grab it. It's on the ends of the rows. Grab your phone, something like that. Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning. Let's answer the question tonight. Why are we here, and where did we come from? Genesis 1, we're going to start in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, I want to pause there for a second. Before we get to everything else that follows, I want us to first consider those first four words. In the beginning, God. Now, there's a lot that's uncertain about the first couple chapters of Genesis. There's a lot of mystery and a lot of theological richness, and we could be here for hours and hours and hours. I would love it. But in these chapters, there's a number of theological questions that you have to really wrestle with and parse through. Is it historical narrative? What's the genre? Is it poetry? Is it myth? Is it a literal six days? Is it six 1,000-year periods? Is it some kind of hybrid, like creationistic evolution? Like, what is happening? And I know that there's a number of really faithful Jesus-loving Christians who fall on all different sorts of that spectrum of how they would interpret it. I have my opinions. Some of you, I'm sure, have yours. Some of you are like, I don't care. That's all great. That's all right. That's not what we're concerned about for today. What we're concerned about for today is what the scriptures are not unclear about and what theologians don't disagree on, and that's who the story starts with. In the beginning, who? God. In the beginning, God. Every story needs a main character. Every story needs a hero. And for this story, the story of the entire universe, that main character is God. The story begins with and is about God, not humanity, not us, God. God is, God exists. It's not in the beginning nothing or in the beginning us. It's in the beginning God. 
And you'll notice we're not given anything as to the origin of God. And that is because he has no origin. He is, what the Bible would say, is eternal, meaning he has no beginning and he has no end. In this kind of profound mystery and uncertainty of God, he has always existed and he will always exist. This is what he says about himself in Revelation 22, 13. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, meaning that what he's about to say, which is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In the beginning, as always was and always will be, there is God. God is the point. He is the main character. He is the hero. The story, the story starts with God because the story is about God. It's his story. Now notice what he does. Chapter 1, we'll read verse 1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So there's a ton of theological implications of the Trinity here that we just don't have time to get into, but you see God the Father creating, God the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. John 1 says that Jesus was the Word who was there in the beginning. Tons of implications, not the purpose of tonight. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So we start to see, I want you to notice as we're reading it, this kind of rhythmic pattern of creation, where God's going to create one thing and then create basically the exact opposite. So here, day one, he's creating night, and he's creating day. He's creating distinction between these two aspects of creation. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And so it was. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So he separates now waters from heaven. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. So another separation, water and land. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. He continues on. Skip down to verse 20. So he's going to create uh, vegetation and plants and all of these things. He's going to create the sun and the moon and the stars. Another distinction and separation. Hey, there's a light for the day, and there's a lesser light for for the night, verse 20, into the fifth day now. And God said that the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and that birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So again, a distinction. We've got animals in the sky, animals in the water. God keeps creating, keeps distinguishing equality but different. Verse 24. And God said, verse day six now, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good and so there's a lot here there's a lot of intricacies we could get into here's three things I want you to see about God first he's powerful He's just speaking, right? He's not even pointing like if I was creating in this way I'd be like boom boom I just point God's like now he just speaks 
Like palm trees, that sounds good. Boom, palm trees. Rhinoceros, yes, rhinoceros, boom, rhinoceros. Like he just keeps speaking and stuff keeps coming out of the earth. What theologians would call ex nihilo, out of nothing. God is creating where there was nothing. He's making something by his breath. He's just speaking. Second, you see God's beauty, right? He creates a world that is beautiful, a world with distinction. He's like, okay, we need some land and we need some water. We need some sky and we need some ground. And then I'm going to fill those things with birds and with sea creatures and with vegetation and life. God is creating out of the abundance of his beauty, out of his goodness, out of his love, out of the, the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit keeps creating out of their perfection. But the third thing you see is the purpose. God's creating with purpose because he sets up life and life can function. And a lot of times what we do when we read Genesis 1 is we like to pit creation and science against each other, right? We like to think, okay, there's science and there's creation. They don't really overlap. But if we read Genesis 1, we see, no, God creates with purpose such that life can actually be alive on the earth. And science says, yeah, it backs that up here. The intricacies of the fact that life can exist on earth. I'm not a scientist. Science was my worst class. I took two in college. Both of them were called Rocks for Jocks. That was like the subtitle, all right? But I did Google, and I do know based on my deep scientific research on Google that life has to be perfectly as it is in order for it to continue here on the earth. So if you were to change the amount of oxygen or the amount of carbon or the amount of gravity by like the nth little bit degree, life would cease to exist. One uh, physicist, he talks about this idea of the, the universe coming out of nothing and being able to sustain life. is like if you took all the parts of a car, which are a lot, I don't know most of them, but if you took all the parts of a car, you put them in a giant car blender and pressed go, it would pop out a fully formed car. He says that's what it would be like if this was by chance. Now, I know there's different opinions on how and what and why, but we know this is not by chance. It's God's purposes. Or if I can quote Steven Weinberg, he's an agnostic uh, Nobel laureate and physicist, physicist. He says this, he says, How surprising is it that the laws of nature and the initial conditions of the universe should allow for the existence of beings who could observe it? Notice this last statement. Life as we know it would be impossible if any one of several physical quantities had slightly different values. Here's a guy who's like agnostic. He's like, I don't know if there's a God. I don't really believe in a God, but I know if you changed one little thing, one slightly different value, life as we know it would be impossible. And he says, how surprising. And we say, no, 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 Stephen, not surprising. God. God. His purposes, his goodness, his design. It's why we look at creation. It's why we hike trails or we know people who hike trails and look at views and look at the stars and look at the moon and look at the sun and look at sunrises and sunsets. Like I was doing this morning on my back porch and I go, not how surprising, it's a sunrise. No, I say, look at God. This is why Psalm 19.1, the psalmist says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This guy above proclaims his handiwork, not the surprisingness of science, not the mystery of the universe. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Glory of God. So God, out of his abundance, out of his love, out of his perfection, creates this magnificent, incredible, down-to-a-T-ordered world. But then we get to the, the peak of the creation act. Pick it up in verse 26. Then God said, let us, you'll notice a Trinitarian reference there too, us, right? God's like, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, make man in our image, after our likeness. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 7. Get a little more detail on this creation of God. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Skip down a little more to verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, and a zare, a strong helper. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam sees the woman, he responds, this beautiful poem, like, yes, thank you, Lord, in essence. So God spends five and a half days setting up this whole world, all of this wonderful, beautiful creation, just speaking it into existence. But you'll notice there's a uniqueness to the sixth day. There's a uniqueness to this creating act of God, where the rest of creation is spoken into existence. For man, God gets down into the dust. He takes the dust and he breathes life into the dust and Adam is formed and then he causes Adam to fall asleep. He takes a rib from Adam and he uses the rib to form Eve. And in both the creation of man and the creation of woman, we see a most essential doctrinal reality. Humanity was created in the image of God, what theologians call the Imago Dei. Though the rest of creation reflected God, pointed back to God, displayed the attributes of God, nothing else in all creation was created in the image of God except for you and me, humanity. We are the only ones who are created in the image of God. We reflect God in a way that is utterly unique to humanity. We have a soul. We have a conscience. We bear God's very imprint. In our maleness and femaleness, we reflect the distinction of the Trinity, where we're equal but different. We're not just animals. We're not just a collection of atoms and molecules and DNA. We are marked with the image of God, which means you have value. You have meaning and you have purpose distinct. Listen, I don't have a puppy. I know that lots of you have puppies and you love your puppies. Your puppy is not made in the image of God. He's just not. They're great. I've been told. They're not made in the image of God. Humanity uniquely has a unique worth and value that humans alone have being made in the image of God. But it gets even better. There's layers to it. Look again at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So theologians throughout church history have referred to this as what's called the cultural mandate. What they say in the cultural mandate is it's God's mandate to Adam and Eve to create culture. And in order to fully understand what's happening here, you have to fully understand what it means by image of God and what it means to have dominion. So let's spend a little bit of time on those. So let's talk about image first. So in ancient Bible times, most nations and civilizations were ruled by kings and monarchs. In order to claim territories, this was before the days of like uh, satellites that could do maps and like latitude and longitude lines. This was just like free for all. What's your territory? What's your land? What's your kingdom? And so in order to differentiate, this land belongs to me as king, kings would create statues that looked like themselves. 
And so they would put that statue and they would say, hey, this land, if you see my statue, you know this land is ruled by me. And in the Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, the word for these statues was the word salem, which can also be translated as image. It's the exact same word used here in Genesis 1.27 when God says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our salem, meaning God's desire in the cultural mandate when he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, is that Adam and Eve would have some kids who would have some kids, and they would spread out across the earth such that when people saw humanity, they would see the image of God and know this is under the rule and reign of the Lord. There's another layer to it. Not only does he call them to be image bearers, but he calls them to have dominion. And that Hebrew word dominion here is the word radad. It means to, to rule or to reign for the good of the one being ruled. And so Adam and Eve are supposed to spread out, declaring to the world, this is under the rule and reign of God. But not only are they to spread out and just hang out, they're to spread out and have dominion, to rule and to reign. They're supposed to be like God, working under his authority, cultivating the earth into something. Because notice, did you notice this? God didn't create the world fully formed. God didn't plop Adam and Eve down into the middle of a city with culture and commerce and government. Like, here you go, here's your iPhone 13 and your Wi-Fi and your latte. Like, that's not how it worked. He gave them raw materials and a calling and a command to what? Have dominion. To take the potential, to take the raw resources of the earth and to join God in the work of taking the world to his desired end. So it means to have dominion for Adam and Eve and for us to join God in this work. This is how one theologian, Christopher Wright, says it. He says, when God created the earth, he created human beings in his own image with the express mission of ruling over creation by caring for it, a task modeled on the kingship of God himself. They're supposed to model themselves after God, to have dominion, to cultivate out of the natural resources of the world, spreading out across the planet, declaring this is the Lord's. Or take it, Richard Pratt, he says it this way. He says, God ordained humanity to be the primary instrument by which his kingship will be realized on the earth. So God takes Adam and Eve, the greatest pinnacle of creation in his image, puts them in the garden. His creation says, you get busy working cultivating, having dominion. This is how Act 1 ends, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Seven is the number of completion in the Hebrew scriptures. And so it says on the seventh day, God stepped back from all of his work and he declares over it in the Hebrew, mehod tov. It means absolutely, abundantly pleasant and right. He says, this is good. This is very good. This is how it should be. It's the Old Testament idea of shalom or flourishing, that the dwelling place of God is with man. They had deep relationship as Adam and Eve lived in God's perfect design. They had a purpose and a calling to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion with God to join him in taking the world somewhere. And God steps back and rests, not because he's tired, he's God, but to declare, no, this is right. This is good. This is how it should be. And I would just challenge us that some of us who have been following Jesus for a while have Bibles that start at Genesis 3 
not at Genesis 1. And so we are saying, hey, yeah, the gospel is that we're messed up and God came to save us, but there's a beginning before that. There's a rightness before that. There's a goodness before that. It's that God declares over this, this is very good. All right, let me summarize everything, and then I'm going to land the plane real hard, okay? Let me summarize it. God, dwelling for all eternity in a perfect, loving, relational community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, out of his abundance and overflow, his power, his goodness, his purpose creates out of nothing. He makes a world that reflects him and his, proclaims his handiwork. And the pinnacle of that creation is mankind, male and female, created in his image, designed to join him in his work of ruling and reigning over the earth, bringing more and more flourishing, reflecting him over all creation, that the world would know he is God and claims it for all of his kingdom. I know you just got that. That's the beginning of our story. That's the beginning. Like I would create out of his abundance and he would create Adam and Eve to join him in his work in the world. So let me answer the question and get this into our lives. Where do we come from and why are we here? Here's the answer. We are here to join the creator God on his mission in the world. We are here to join the creator God on his mission in the world. Or if I can put it more simply for us, we are here from God and for God. You and I are here from God and for God. That is why the first act in the story is called creation. The kingdom of God begins. Not the kingdom of humanity, not the kingdom of Tim, not the kingdom of you, not the kingdom of America, the kingdom of God begins. God is the main character. He is the hero. He's the author. The entire story is about God. And everything you see in creation, everything you see around us, including you, is meant to be created for him for his glory and for his magnitude and for his love being put on display. This is all over the place in scripture. I'll give you a few. Isaiah 6, 3, the angels are surrounding the throne room of God and they're singing this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, God says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Consider Colossians 1.16. It says, for by him, being by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So all things were created for and through and by God, including you, which means this, you're not the point. You're not the point. Infinitely valuable, yes. Created in the image of God with worth, yes. With a calling and a vision on your life from God himself, yes, absolutely. And none of us are the point. God is the point. God is the point. This is how Pastor Greg Gilbert says it. He says this, The fundamental truth of human existence, the well from which all else flows, is that God created us, and therefore God owns us. God created us, therefore God owns us. Which means everything in your life is about God. Your job is about God. Your marriage is about God. Your family, your house or apartment, your friendships, your time, your money, your calling in this world, whatever it may be, all of it is for God. And it's one challenge for us to believe that. 
Right? It's one challenge for us to say, okay, I get that on a cognitive, functional, like in my mind level. Okay, I get it. Everything is for God. My life is for God. My money is for God. My time is for God. I get that. It's a whole other issue to get it into our lives, is it not? Because it's one thing to say on Sundays to worship and sing to Jesus. Yeah, to you all hearts are open. We're giving you the glory. We'll exalt you. It's a whole other thing to exalt God in our Mondays and our Tuesdays and our Wednesdays and our Thursdays. Because if you're anything like me, a sinner in need of deep grace from God, then you know that it's so hard to have your life not revolve around you. It's so hard for me not to have my life revolve around me because I wake up and guess what I'm doing? I'm thinking about me. I just do. I'm selfish like that. Maybe you're better than me. I don't know. That's great. If you are, I wake up thinking about me. My first thought is me. I go to work. I think about me. I go into my friendships. I think about me. I go to coffee with that person. Guess what I'm thinking about? How are they viewing me? How are they receiving me? How are they taking me? I go home from a long day at work. I spend time with my family. Guess what I'm thinking about? Me. What do I want to eat for dinner? Are they going to be good for me? Is my daughter going to obey me? Is my wife going to be kind to me? It's all about me. And so it's so easy for me on Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. to say, no, all of life exists for God, and then to wake up tomorrow morning and functionally live as if all of life revolves around me. To say, yeah, of course, I'm created for God and by God, and then to live as if, no, I'm created by God before Tim. And that's the lie of moralistic therapeutic deism, it's the lie of Western secular liberalism, it's the lie of our culture, and in a large part, the lie of Christianity today that would say to you and to us, yes, it is about you, and God exists to make you happen. And God exists to make you happy, and God exists to fill your life of joy, and God exists to get you your dreams and what you want. And adamantly, Genesis 1 says, no, in the beginning, not you, not humanity, not whatever, in the beginning, God. God. The story begins with God, and none of the rest of the story is going to make sense. None of the rebellion that we're going to see next week, none of the redemption of Jesus, none of the consummation where we're all headed to eternity, worshiping and celebrating God, makes sense if we don't first understand the original design was for and by God. So you got to get that first. Genesis 1, we are created by and for God. God. And here's the reality is that not only are those other worldviews, those other ways of living lies, they also don't work. They don't work. They turn life upside down. They make it about us and it just doesn't work. And we're going to see that next week, how bad it goes when all of sin is us saying, no, God, I want to be on the throne instead of you and how bad and messed up everything gets when we try to live that way. But for now, we remember the first move and the act, the first act of the story of God is the kingdom of God beginning. It's all about God. And we have a chance to remember that each and every Sunday when we gather and take communion together. This is an act that we do as followers of Jesus, where we set aside and we remember, no, this is about God. Everything we do from our Monday mornings to our Sunday evenings is about God. And so we take time to remember the good news of Jesus together. Even the cross itself, for our good, absolutely, is still about the glory of God. So we're going to remember the body and blood of Jesus together. If you're not a Christian, this is one of the only things we'd ask you not to participate in, not because we want to withhold from you, but because you'd be declaring that this is true about you, that this is the body and blood for you, and it's just not yet, but rather than take communion, we invite you to believe, to take Christ, to trust him for the forgiveness of sins through his death and resurrection. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, I'd love to talk to you. I'll be down front afterward. But for all who are in Christ, all who trust in Jesus, let's remember the sacrifice of Christ together. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. When you eat this, we, we remember the brokenness of Christ's body, broken for our sin. So church, take and eat. In the same way, Jesus 
took a cup of wine after supper, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. And he said, when you drink from this cup, you're announcing, remembering, celebrating the Lord's death until the day when Christ returns or calls us home. And so we're going to take this to remember the blood of Christ shed to make us whiter than snow. Church, take and drink. Just a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to move into a time of response. Just like last week and every week, there's going to be some folks in the back who would love to pray with you and for you. If you're going through anything, if you want to respond to the message, just getting some prayer for whatever's going on in your life, I would encourage you, go back there, pray with them. We're going to stand in just a minute and sing and celebrate Jesus together. But let me let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for... Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God, thank you that the story doesn't start at Genesis 3. It doesn't start with brokenness. It doesn't start with the fall. It doesn't start with sin and humanity being wretched, God, but it starts with a good, wonderful, bountiful, perfect, holy God creating and declaring that it is very good. And I pray as we think about our stories, God, as we think about the lives that we lead, as we think about the decisions that we're making, as we think about the schedules that we have, the money that we spend, the time we give, the relationships we inhabit, God, every area of our lives, God, would you help us not just cognitively say, yeah, it's about God, everything's about God, sure, but to actually functionally live as if you are on the throne, as if you are the king, as if you are the creator. And you are worthy of all our praise. God, we want to declare and sing with the angels in your throne room, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that all the earth declares your glory. We want to worship you as the king you are. We want to worship you as the creator that you are. We want to worship you as the God that you are, the one true God. Help us to live in light of your story, the true story, the better story, that we are created by you, for you all of our lives. God, we need your help. We need your spirit. Thank you for the gospel that makes it possible to know you and walk with you. Lord, we love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.